0: This episode is brought to you by Exceder. Exceder provides life-science startups with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to accelerate R&D and commercialization. Lease the equipment you need with Exceder. Extend your runway, hit your milestones. As a podcast listener, you can redeem exclusive discounts with a growing list of biotech vendors and get $500 off your first equipment lease by using promo code TBSP on exceder.com slash rewards.
1: Welcome to the Biotech Startups podcast by Exceder. Join us as we speak with first-time founders, experienced scientists, serial entrepreneurs, and biotech investors about the challenges and triumphs of running a biotech startup. Gain actionable insight into navigating the life sciences industry in each episode as we explore the business of science from pre-seed to IPO with your host, John Chee. The purpose of the Biotech Startups podcast is to provide general insight into the ever-changing world of life sciences through the experiences of a variety of guests. Exceda is providing this content for general informational purposes only. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Exceda or its affiliates. The use of information on the Biotech Startups podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Exceda representatives or its guests are those of the representatives or guests and do not necessarily reflect the view of Exceda affiliates and content sponsors. In our last episode, we spoke with Jacob Glanville about growing up in Guatemala as a child, moving to the United States, and attending UC Berkeley. If you missed it, be sure to go back and give it a listen. Today, we're excited to continue our conversation, diving into his time at Pfizer and studying at Stanford University. So sit back, relax, and let's get started.
2: After I graduated, I worked for a while longer with Commercial Launders Group, and then started looking for jobs in industry. A mathematician I had worked with, a Cuban mathematician, her ex-husband, worked at a site at Pfizer. And so through that, I got a job interview. And like I bought some terribly awful suit in retrospect because I didn't know what I was
0: doing. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I've been there. I've been yeah. there. Yeah.
2: So I like crazy, did everything I could. And I showed up and had, you know, it was like a four hour interview. It was like very different before I was working at a restaurant. It was like a really cute little restaurant, Ann's Kitchen on Telegraph in Berkeley to like yep. help make ends meet. I was living in the co-op. I'd worked in labs, but you know, the interview there is very informal. It's like basically the professor yeah. decides whether they like you and whether you sound yeah. like you're not too much of an idiot. They're like, all right, you're worth some time. Or yeah. this thing was I'm meeting with everyone all day long. Some of them were really hammering you. And so I left not knowing how it went. And just knowing that it had been four months since I had a job and I better figure this out or I'm going to be out of my apartment. And then I got the job. And what I was excited about about that site was that this was a site that had recently been purchased by Pfizer because it did antibody engineering and discovery. And so at the time, yeah, in 2008, Yeah, it was like perfect, right? So (laughs) Pfizer, like many other companies were like, well, we better start acquiring some companies that do this antibody discovery stuff. This is important. And Pfizer in particular was historically just a small molecule company. And they kind of didn't need to change that quick because they were just like floating off of this infinite cash frat party of Lipitor and Viagra. But I think they were realizing the patent cliff was coming and they're like, well, shit, let's uh, let's acquire some biotechs. And so they'd acquired this site before I joined and the site did antibody therapeutics. And they discovered them through phage display and through hybridoma. So either immunizing mice and then pulling out the mouse antibodies or this new technology I was exposed to that ended up having a big impact on the work I do, which is called phage display, which is a way of taking hundreds of people's immune systems and distilling them down into a vial of, of tens of billions of their antibodies and then searching through all of them. And I showed up, the person who hired me was just like, right, right. So your job is to make that man happy, therefore make me happy. I'll see you in six weeks. And then the dude left (laughs) to go to the East coast. And so that was literally my job was to go make those people happy. So I had this amazing ability to roll into this building with like a hundred people. And so I just went around and talked to everybody to be like, what do you do? What do you know? How can I make myself most useful? And they hired me because I had the computational biology background. Right. And so they wanted a programmer. Luckily, I didn't have a boss who's like, okay, congratulations, you're making widget A. Because then I would be stuck dependent on what that person in the bioinformatics line thought was important. Yep. And instead, I went and talked to all the scientists. I figured out what they did. And the nice thing about bioinformatics and computational biology is like, if I just walk in and be like, hey, tell me about how... Hyperdoma screening works. They'll be like, hey, yeah, yeah, we're a little busy. Could you like fuck off?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: (laughs) But if I roll in there and say, hey, listen, I've got these new tools and like, I think I can make your job much faster if you can help me understand what you're doing, then they will open the doors for you. And so it becomes your passport to knowledge. And so I went from group to group to the kinetics group, the phage display group, the Hybridoma group, the, the biology, the expression groups, and basically did that bartering where I was like, look, I, I let me understand what you're doing. And I think it makes some tools to make life easier for you. And it was also cool the way this guy, John May Pons and Arvin, his buddy Arvin, the way they organized the place was very organic, which it enabled me to wander around through the rooms without someone being like, hey, you're in the wrong part of the hierarchy, fuck off.
0: Was that a, a cultural element of the company that they acquired? Or is that Pfizer's style where it's like- That's not,
2: yeah, not, no, it's not Pfizer's style. Pfizer's is much more hierarchical. Like, they're huge. They have to be, right? They yeah, have to have yeah. some level. No, it was a small biotech. But also you bring up a good point. Actually, this is my theory that the reason big pharma's buy small biotechs is because the small biotechs innovate very quickly. And that's often the trade-off is that like- Everybody wants to spend a huge budget in a big pharma to go build new tech, and there are groups that are building great stuff. So there, I definitely, you know, I know a bunch of them. But I would say, by and large, the tendency is: well, let's let the new biotechs innovate, and then we'll acquire them. Part of it is that the reward structure is more favorable. You're taking a much higher risk, but you're also going to get a big chunk of the equity on a successful exit for a biotech. But the other part is that a small biotech can be more organic, all right? And you have these like two extreme versions of human organization. Like on one side, you have the hierarchical model which is at the extreme, it's like militaries or a factory that's manufacturing cars, right? Where there's a specific set of reports and each person has a duty. They don't need to cross talk to each other. They just need to execute. And communication goes up and down and not sideways. Um, it's super efficient, but it's terrible at innovating, obviously. yeah,
0: Sounds like it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the other one is the organic model, which is everybody can talk to everybody. So it's like a herd of kittens, right? Yep. Super good at innovating, but inefficient. You're going to be wasting time. And so I think the biotech's air more on the side of their startups on the organic model, which helps them innovate more. I actually found it was very clever. The the organizational structure that Jaume and Arvin put in place enabled that at Renat, which is the site's name. And so I basically got airdropped in and like right away, what I realized was like, oh shit, like antibodies are a special class of rapidly mutating proteins. It's like all this hidden Markov model work that I was doing, all the work at Kevin Shalander's lab, and also a lot of the immune diversity analysis strategies and the population genetics, all of the stuff I had learned, I was immediately applicable to this problem. And the other crazy thing was I just assumed when I was like going to peer past the silver curtain of big pharma, there was going to be all these amazing bioinformatic tools. And instead it was like a wasteland. There was good stuff for chemoinformatics because that's what Pfizer did, right? They invested in that for decades, but biologics, they were just getting started. They were acquiring biotechs in to do this. So like when people were screening the phage display, libraries and the hybridoma, They were using like pulling up one sequence at a time and looking at them in vector and TI as like one example where I was like, that's nuts. We got to be able to do this way better. And so I started building tools that was kind of at my trade was I was like, look, I bet I could build a tool that could automate the analysis of larger numbers of sequences much easier. And then you just tell me what you think is important for engineering and I'll build a tool that actually asks those questions. Because even off the shelf stuff was mostly built by academics. It was like overfit to a specific problem, like the wrong species or the wrong primer sets. And it also was asking genetic questions because that's what academics cared about. VDJ recombination. Whereas like, and anyone in engineering cares, like, is this going to fold well? Is it stable? Is it going to have biochemical liabilities? Is it a certain amount of difference justifying the additional cost of more experiments on more molecules? And so I built tools to do it, except that, I was like, great, I have this tool. And it was awesome. It was like hidden Markov model driven. It made it way easier for them to analyze the hybridoma and the phage display in particular. Except that then people kept coming in my office asking me to run it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so my uh, my buddy, like this guy, Andrea Rossi, is this, like a uh, computational crystallographer guy. it was like super awesome. He's an Italian, like, super character. He was sitting next to me and he's like, Jake, uh, what is the problem? Now you have the uh, the job security. And I'm like, no, man, this means I can never get promoted because I have to do this fucking thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like typecasted. You're just yeah, like, you're stuck. I want different roles.
2: I was like, I've already done that. It's no longer yeah. interesting. I solved the problem. And I think I benefited from, you know, Kevin Shalander was like a ruthless precision algorithm developer, you need to do the thing that a lot of people that call themselves computer scientists don't do the science part, which is like, what are your positive and negative controls to validate that your algorithm is performing the way it should? What is your null model? Like all these apps and things where a lot of these clowns just sit there and go, oh, well, it should work because I strung, you know, blast P together with this next thing. And so I'm like, well, have you tested it? Yeah. Like, yeah. have you tested it against a null model that performs better than random chance? She beat that into me pretty well. And I implemented it. So what happened was I was tired of these people coming in the office. And so I was like, what I need is a web server. The same stuff I was doing when I was hacking around and like the side jobs, I was helping people build websites mm-hmm. and I knew how to do Linux web servers pretty well. And so I took this like absolute garbage laptop that they hand out <laughs> to everybody at Pfizer and I reinstalled Linux on it. And now it runs great. It's like, cause Linux is so computer efficient, right? In terms of memory and CPU and stuff. And so I ran Linux on it and I installed like the LAMP stack web server system. So it became a web server, even though it was a laptop. And then I called the Pfizer help desk because technically people can now reach it. They would have to type in like AMR1659, some crazy number, Pfizer.com. And then anyone in the building could type that in their browser and they'd actually reach my little web server. And I had my tools on it so they could go run the tools through the browser. That's amazing. <laughs> Except that the line was terrible. And so I called the help desk and I was like, hi, can I get a DNS alias, another name associated with my I called it a server. I didn't tell them it was my laptop. Yeah, yeah. And they're they're like, what? Well, nobody does that, but I guess so. And I was like, nobody does that? I'm like, is antibody.pfizer.com available? And they're like, oh, yeah. And so now my laptop became antibody.pfizer.com.
0: And it was a, just an old ratty laptop. Garbage. I don't want to like yeah. crap
2: on Lenovo, but it was like an old Lenovo, right? So yeah. again, what do you do if you have to hand out a hundred thousand laptops? You hand out the cheap ones. And so I basically, I, what I did is each time I had a new tool I built for one of the groups, I would go put it up on my web server. And well, it was simple, but it was a user interface. People would go and they could click a button. They could upload their data. It would analyze it for them and it would provide them something very useful to them. And as a side effect, I was collecting all of the data in a central location. So I could meta-analyze lots of experiments. And initially it was our site, but then what I did is I over-engineered the problem for Sanger. And so a high throughput sequencing group came and joined and they had the ability to use these 454 pyrosequencers, like one of the first high throughput sequencing instruments. They were using it to go look at genes with mutations and people that like should have a disease, but don't as like a way to find new drug targets. And I was like, Hey, I would really like to go look really deep into this antibody library to figure out why it doesn't work as well as I'd like, or I'd like to look at mice immunizations to try to figure out why we miss, why we don't hit the epitope that we want to hit, the key target. And they're like, well, that's nuts, but all right. That was a little more nuanced than that. They were, yeah, 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 yeah. I think Mei and Arvin were all interested in the concept. So they were, uh, it might've been their idea. Let's be fair. Yeah. I think it was. So. Yeah. <laughs> So I remember what it was. They invited a speaker. It was actually a really early guy who deserves the credit. It was this guy. I think he came a company called iSeq or something really early. It never really took off. Adaptive took over, but this guy was cool. Like I think it was a Japanese guy with like long silver hair. I think he was the first person I had heard about using deep sequencing to analyze antibodies. And so we did it and it turned out to be immensely useful because I was able to deep sequence the full antibody repertoire of our phage display library. And I could compare it to all of these panning programs that were happening first at our site, but now also at all the other sites at Pfizer that are using the library. And so I had the ability to look at a library before and after selection pressure. And that gave me an immense number of ideas on how to improve antibody discovery libraries. And then with hibernoma, similarly, you could look at the mice and look at their immune response. For the first time, you could answer the fundamentally simple but important question, like how many antibodies are popping out after you vaccinate? Can it change if you change the adjuvants or the timing of immunization? What are the constraints on this system that cause it to sometimes fail? And Pfizer let me publish. So I was publishing methods on this and then Next thing I know that we had all this data, they came in my office and they're like, Hey, Jake, so you have all this data. You know, you told me all these ways that the library could be better. Like, what if we gave you a synthesis budget, a big one, and we go synthesize the optimal library? And so I was like, Fuck yes. And we used a technology, it was a synthesis technology called Selenomics. And then we also used a, a couple other technologies to build iteratively better libraries that were like much, much better. And I kept publishing on them. And it was this awesome cycle of like, figure out where libraries were deficient, build a library to address those issues, and then look at the sequences after selection on that one and learn how to iterate to improve the libraries each time. So I did that for, yeah, for, I guess I was there for four years and they let me publish a number of these papers. I had this great collaborator named Wenwuzai, another awesome guy named Javier Chapar-Rigers, and then Sasan Yosef, who now works with me at Cinevax and worked with me at Distributed Bio. I (laughs) Sasan. Yeah, who I met, I think, in that first month. Oh, wow. Did you bug her? Yeah, that's what happened. I saw her ask a question because on Tuesdays, they had these meetings where everyone would go and present their research, which is fucking smart, right? Because it's a carrot and a stick. If you've been slacking off, you know you have to go embarrass yourself in front of the entire company once every three months. But if you've done good work, like me, I was like, I want to like work my ass off because that's my chance for everyone to see what I'd done. I saw it as a huge opportunity. And so someone else was giving a talk and I see this lady over there asking these like gnarly, awesome questions. And I was, you know, I loved immunology. I felt like I wasn't close enough to it yet. And I could tell she was an immunologist. And so I wandered around the building until I could find her. And she remembers it, the details. She, I walked in her <laughs> office and I'm like, you're smart. I want to work with you. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's how it began.
0: Like, who's this young gun that's just like yeah. coming through, just barging through?
2: She was hard to find, too. They had her down in the basement somewhere. I was like, I had to like do a little walk to find her. Yeah. But yeah. You know, hearing
0: about your experience at Pfizer and we're not it sounds almost like the dream. It sounds like really collaborative culture, kind of freewheeling, but a meritocracy where you have to show results. Then they like give you a big budget. In retrospect, it sounds like, duh, should be doing this. But you had the ability to do your thing.
2: Like, yeah. why leave? It was also a pressure cooker. So they definitely mm. pushed everybody. And uh, that's not why I left. Actually, I liked the pressure. I think honestly, like those guys helped bring the best out of me. And in particular, I want to recognize Arvind. Because I asked to report to him once the first guy I was reporting to had left the company during the Wyeth acquisition. And I just really respected Arvind. He's a hard ass, but he's a Sikh. You know, there's a certain like warrior personality and a really good scientist. And he's like a hard ass, but he'll take the time to help you understand, but like force you to figure it out. Right. Yep. I think he was one of the most influential people in my scientific career. And I thrived working with him. The reason I left was that I had been promoted four times when I was there. I had a BA, right? And so I was promoted four times. So I was a principal scientist with a BA. I was probably like one of the fastest promoted people in the history of Pfizer. <laughs> but I didn't think I was going to get promoted a fifth time. You know, I, I maybe it would have happened over time. But the other reasons were I felt that... I think because I was like, a just luck, I was an early mover and being able to have access to these high throughput sequencing tools to look at the immune system, but also I was like basically immune engineering, right? I was using synthesis to build repertoires to test hypotheses on the way that they worked. And I was building a bunch of these ideas. And I think I, I was one of the first people to get a look at the data and because... I was a proto-immunologist a molecular biologist and a computer scientist. It was actually all happening in my head as opposed to having it around a meeting table, which is normally in these cross-disciplinary areas, you have different people trying to meet and interpret the data and they're miscommunicating and stuff. And so I think my cross-training and combined with early access to immune data gave me a lot of hypotheses on how to build radically better libraries and also this kernels of an idea of how to create a universal vaccine. And some people were like, Jake, like, why the hell would you leave? My intentions were to try to get a PhD and to launch a company at the same time to build up these ideas. And I I wanted to get the PhD because I felt that, one, I wanted to surround myself with immunologists so that if there was something wrong with my universal vaccine idea, that they would do me the favor of deflating it so I could work on something else. If there was something wrong with it, I wanted to know it now. The second was I needed to have the paper because if I'm going to bring something like this to the world, I needed people to hear me. So those are the key reasons. And then I covered my ass. So I had optionality because I also was going to launch a company that if things worked out, I was going to build it up because I saw there was like a market opportunity for like the computational immunology tools and better antibody libraries. I'm like, I could build that stuff up and I could use it to support my universal vaccine concept to test it out. And if it doesn't work, fuck it, I'll become a grad student full-time till I graduate. And if it like blows up so massive, I don't have time. I'd maybe I'll suspend the PhD program or something. And so that was the plan. I definitely had some people being like, Jake, you're already a principal scientist with a BA. You're ahead of the game. Like stop doing more stuff. But I kind of felt like I didn't have kids yet. I felt if I waited another 10 years, I wouldn't have the economic flexibility to take the risk of a jump like that. And I had this idea that was like burning a hole in my pocket. I had to go do something about it. And so again, I only applied to Stanford and Harvard because my wife's in the Bay Area. I was like, I'm not going to go to Harvard. It's across the country. And Stanford liked me. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to Stanford. And I liked them too. I think I had the advantage, like a lot of people that do PhDs. Well, let me stop you real quick. Berkeley, Stanford. You know, mortal enemies, <laughs> yeah. like mortal
0: enemies, you know, yeah, yeah. please tell me there was something the Berkeley boy and he was like, I'm behind enemy
2: lines. It was so weird, dude. It was so weird. Like when I first got onto campus and it was like around the time of the game. So it was all these like red banners everywhere. And people, yeah. like, oh. I felt like that scene, I like, guess it's messed up. Like no offense to everybody. I felt like that scene in like Indiana Jones, the last crusade where like Indiana Jones has like gone to the heart of Berlin and he's like surrounded by the enemy. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was like, this is bizarre. Yeah, you're behind enemy lines. It's, you're like, you're in Berkeley for so long. Like it's just like, how could you? It was weird. Although I gotta say, like, I enjoyed my time at both institutions, but I think it, maybe it's just grad school is the best fit for me. But it, it was a smaller community, like it would notice if I wasn't around. So I get calls yeah. like Jake, your attendance at Student Journal Club is it disappointing. And I'm like, Well, that's a coincidence. I find student journal club disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, Well, you gotta attend. And yeah, so yeah. I left. Like you know, I, I had been accepted. I I gave them like four months' warning, so I did a lot of time for the transition. I love that team, and so I wanted to make sure I didn't cause a disruption or anything. Yep. It was a headache for me because they wanted me to go hire a replacement, and they didn't like anybody else. So. Yeah,
0: uh, I realized it was kind of a very specific point in time. Looking back on your experience at Pfizer, I'm thinking about maybe someone who was in a similar spot. Undergrad studied, you know, had a badass experience in a lab and they're now like, what's next? Because it sounds like everything that you've experienced is kind of like this additive, organic thing where it's like, well, I experienced this and you piece it together. But would you recommend that people go experience what big pharma is like and get kind of something similar? Or is that just a rare point in time?
2: So here's my thoughts on this. So it depends on the field and the person. But I think when it comes to biotechnology, particularly if the person's doing any type of bioinformatics or computational biology, you're useful right away. Out of a BA, you can go, especially if you have that hybrid training, if you're familiar with the biology and the computer science, because like that's, it's always scary to me. People are bioinformaticians, but they're really just computer scientists who like happen to be like analyzing some like nucleotide sequences. Because I think that's very susceptible to a combination of like arrogance and ignorance but if you have some of both then you are right away useful and i think you can get probably more practical training if you're deployed into the right group because you can be very impactful you're going to be impactful in a phd program as well but i think that's what helped me is i was able to be, do a lot of damage to go be helpful to groups because i had this skill set and i was the person who had it at the site right and then enabled me to do that trade of what i was able to deliver in exchange for them like flowing me with knowledge for a bunch of stuff you know i was definitely like there drinking from a fire hose it was like kinetics equations. And like yeah. I was like, what does vehicle control mean? Like, there's like a million things you have to learn when you first start. So I think that part helps. I think the equation's a little bit differently. If you're going to go work at a pharma, but your job is going to be like, okay, I'm going to work at pharma. My job is to prepare transient transfection media for the next four years. I don't think you get the same return. That said- There's a lot of opportunities out there. It's not all like transient transfection media prep. That's a real example.
0: Well, I have a funny story. You know, when my first job, the lab didn't have enough money for a liquid handler. So I was just pipetting doing cell line, (laughs) cell culture, right? Which actually is the inspiration for Exceder where I was just like, why don't we just get the liquid handler? (laughs) Why do I have to keep doing cell line maintenance? (laughs) And like coming out of school, it's like, I think there's like this amount of like paralysis. You're just like, well, my PI is telling me to go stay in academia. And then there's like, you know, big pharma and like, that's the consideration. And then obviously there's like the consideration of entrepreneurship, which is a whole beast in itself. When you were at Stanford, is that when I'm going to start a business seed was planted or was it way earlier?
2: I started distributed bio before I started at Stanford. I, I made a business like when I was in undergrad, I, like I said, I was working at Ann's kitchen and doing restaurant stuff. And then. At a certain point, I started a side business where I was building websites and like dynamic interface content for websites. So like there were miscellaneous ones here and there, but I had my little side business. I had this idea of creating a business because I was frustrated on not being able to easily get funded around the idea of a universal vaccine. And I was like, this is fucking ridiculous because it was early. It was 2012. Everyone mm-hmm. cared about PD-1. I mean, checkpoint inhibitors and broad spectrum vaccine seemed like a fantasy. And I was nobody, right? I didn't have a PhD yet. Who the hell is this kid? And I felt that a business was a way to get me there without having to go around with my hand begging and not getting any change. And I was like, I could build a company and I knew I could build much better anybody libraries and I had the tools to perform the analysis. People were trying to hire me. So I knew I could go, Hey, how about I license you the software instead of you hire me? And it's the same thing which is just kind of a bigger version of what I did with that laptop. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. And so I kind of knew, I was like, I could pay for this. That was my idea. And I wasn't scared about creating a business because I grew up in small business creation culture. I watched my parents do it. I watched the parents of my friends do it. I watched, you know, most Mayan families have like a little micro business in front of their house. And so that part was not troubling to me. It didn't seem that daunting to go do it. And so I just went ahead and did it. So we, yeah, I launched the company... Before starting the PhD program, I declared it with the OTL and then I maintained the separation of church and state where I was working on antibody discovery and optimization in the company. And then at Stanford, I was working on like T cell receptors, analyzing cytokines and phenotypes, cellular phenotypes, doing some in antibody analysis, but very academic, like on clinical samples yeah. or human samples, but not with respect to therapeutic development, which I strictly kept outside And so that was kind of the path there. I think when I was at Stanford, it was awkward because first off, I was a little older than the starting students. But to get back to your original question, my year on average, I think almost everyone in my PhD year, they all had a couple of years of experience out in industry. And I think our year on average was kind of a heavyweight year because of that extra experience really helped them thrive in a PhD where I think... It can be tough to go straight from undergrad to go to a PhD because you have a bunch of people telling you, oh, you're fucking smart and you probably are smart. But with a PhD, I went in knowing exactly what I wanted to do. And I had a whole plan. And like, you don't have to do it like I do. You can be more flexible. But I think having no plan or trying to like figure out who you are as a person while navigating a PhD, that shit can be tough. That could take you a couple extra years Yeah, sounds and to like burn it. some bridges. It can be stressful everybody's different. Some people are gonna do that and do it great. I'm guarantee you if I say, yeah, don't do that, people are gonna go post a whole bunch of examples of like remarkable luminaries who've done exactly that and they worked out great. So I don't wanna say don't do that. I just say like, if you're not sure, a couple of years of industry experience in the right role where you can get some exposure, I think can like help you shore up what you're interested in and what you wanna do. And also it kind of gives you a little head correction on like the priorities are so different. And in my opinion, more sane in industry compared to academia. Yep that it can give you a better sense of perspective on what you're interested in and how you wanna focus. You're gonna spend a couple of years building ideas that you think are the ones that are the most interesting and listening in like a practical execution environment about new science as it comes out. So you're gonna get that free data coming in with a framework of what this means for new technologies being built. Whereas if you go straight from undergrad, you're basically going from lecture to lecture and it's hard to know what's important because the people who are telling you what's important are academics. So what is important to them is often wildly different. And that may be exactly where you want to go. You're going to be an awesome professor. Go do that. Those are the right people to listen to for that because they're going to give you that strategic toolkit on how to read the wind of what is currently in the academic zeitgeist and either like go against the wind to find something new or to like be the first one in front of the line to make sure you put your stamp on the cool new thing when it pops up and like read grant review boards successfully yeah. and those sorts of techniques, which are really different set of techniques than industry where the goal is to go create something and get there quickly and so forth.
0: I'm really seeing like a common thread and I, I very much feel the same way. It's just like get exposure because you don't know what you don't know. It's just hard to make that bet. You're like, Yep, academia is for me, but I haven't seen what industry might be like. And you know, I definitely have you know colleagues and friends who've done the, the, exactly what you said, super successful undergrad, PhD, postdoc, the whole academic round. And it's like props. But yeah. for me, I, I feel like I would very much second guess. It's like, is this the right decision? I don't know.
2: I think the one piece of advice I'd give people is try to figure out what you love. It gets you excited. I don't know if it's love, it's excitement. Because if if you're doing something you're excited about, you're naturally going to exceed all the other people around you and you're going to become exceptional. Whereas if you're doing something you're not that stoked about, you're going to feel like other people are surpassing you. And you're, you're going to struggle to understand why it is There's that weirdo who just seems like they're blazing away on it. It's because yeah. They fucking love it. They're yeah. waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it because it fascinates them. If you can find that thing for you, you will naturally be exceptional and you will live a life. Like you said, the thing that you have to guard the most carefully is time because you're going to spend a lot of your life on your job. And if you can do something that you is fascinating, it's basically like you're playing games throughout your whole life and you're more likely to accomplish successful things and feel very fulfilled. So not everybody works that way that like fascination what drives them. But I think for those that do, I think, if you can find that, then that's an easy choice. Go do that thing. And I think that's often a good answer.
0: Yeah. I think you made a very astute delineation too about something that fascinates you and not necessarily something that you have to love. Because yeah. I think sometimes those two things can be misconstrued and kind of just yeah. balled up together. Yeah. And, you know, some folks are lucky enough where it's both. But I think if you're seeking like the Hail Mary, super fascinated, really good at it. And I really love this all in one. It's the rarest of the rare and, you know, props to people who find that. But I think finding something you're excited about is already such a rarity that I feel like you should pursue that thing.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, like, like the thing I love, honestly, it's like snorkeling and like surfing yeah, yeah. or being in a, in a boat. I love that like, guy just bliss out. I like I don't want to do that as a job. That's my getaway thing to like, feel like I'm at one with nature, man. Like I want to be excited when I'm at work. Cause that's what yeah. gets me pumped to go do it. And also I don't want to be like an instructor for like, tele- no, I want to, that's the whole point is that I'm by there by myself. That's my pleasure yeah. stuff. Like, that's what I love.
0: That's exactly the same way as me is. I love going and eating at new restaurants and stuff like that. Kind of like yeah. foody things. And I was just like, I don't know if I could be a food critic.
2: Yeah, I think I would just
0: hate going to restaurants after that, that it morphs for you.
2: It turns what you love into a job. So no, find the thing that gets you excited, that fascinates you, and then have the thing you love be something else. I yeah, and just do that. That's a good like, move. On, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I guess what the kind of last question on Stanford is you separated church and state. So it sounded like there wasn't like a bunch of red tape tech transfer type stuff that you had to go through in order to do DB, or did you have to go through that as a matter of protocol?
2: No, it wasn't. I mean, there were some, but it really wasn't that bad. They were, Stanford's like pretty well set up for people to do stuff like this. I basically yeah. just went in and declared it. They just want to know if, if you're going to come in and I have this idea, I'm trying to make another company, but I'm also going to work on it. Then that's bullshit, right? You're using university resources to basically try to avoid the patent system. And I wasn't doing that. I already had my patents and um, the technologies were very different. You just want to declare it up front to be like, look, here's what I'm doing outside. Here's what I'm doing inside. And they just want to make sure, which is fair. Right. That makes sense. So, like, I had, I think I'm on some patents, an inventor on some patents for some like T cell phenotyping and sequencing, and maybe a couple other things from Stanford. Touch Stanford go register it and let them know. Yeah,
0: yeah. better to be forthcoming about yeah. all the things. Yeah,
2: and then, and then that's fine. And then for my outside stuff, I basically just, I went and I asked, and you know, I was just like right up front, I'm like going with my passport over the customs into yeah. academia land. And I was like, hey, I, was like, I have something to declare in my bag. And they're like, okay, yeah. that's fine. Just keep us appraised. And it was fine.
0: Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. Would you say that kind of experience is Stanford specific? Or is it every school by school is a very different kind of process?
2: I can't speak for the whole world, but I do know that yeah. like, compared to Guatemala, I think the U.S. has a much more friendly ability to mix academics and industry. You know, I'm an affiliate professor at the University of San Carlos in Guatemala. And part of that relationship I built with those guys over the years, including doing some of this research on the pigs, Uh, the vaccine, because they were like, yeah, no, I got to tell you, like California is really different than Guatemala, where they have a more rigid view that like academics should be untainted by industry. Mm. And and I think that idea probably pervades some of like European countries and some other areas where there's more of a separation. Even in the United States, there's some universities like Harvard, Stanford, Austin, there's a number of universities that are very good at having like... Spin outs, just bleeding yeah. out of the organization, even professors that are like part of a spin out while an academic. And there's other institutions where you almost never see that. I think it, it happens less than the UCs, for instance.
0: Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that. I feel like the bubbling up of that energy, I feel like it's more recent, but I, definitely when I was still there, it felt really
2: separated. For sure. And so I think there is that difference. But again, I'm like, those are the two systems that I know. So I can't yeah. really speak that much outside of those two.
1: That's all for today's episode of the Biotech Startups Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our insightful conversation with Jacob Glanville, covering his time at Pfizer and studying at Stanford University. To learn more about Jacob's journey, be sure to tune in to our next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and we look forward to having you join us again on the Biotech Startups podcast for part three of Jake's journey, where we will discuss him starting distributed bio and spinning out centre The Biotech Startups Podcast is brought to you by Exceder. Don't want to miss an episode? Make sure to search for Biotech Startups Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. To learn more about our leasing program, visit our website www.excedr.com. We provide research labs with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to support a path to exceptional outcomes. On behalf of the team here at Exceda, thanks for listening.